Hello, Kristen here. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you that the antidote is a thing that's happening. It's a series of monthly gatherings that will help you return to your body and your being over and over again in the face of, you know, 2024, election insanity, climate change, global wars, your own personal stuff, other stuff. It's crazy out there. And it's easy to abandon yourself and freak out. The antidote is for bringing you home to yourself so that you can be safe in your being even when the world outside of you feels objectively unsafe. And because everybody's marketing at you and there's no reason for you to believe me, you can head to jointheantidote.com to grab a free recording of the first session that happened this week so you can feel it instead of thinking about it to see if it's a good match for you. That is jointheantidote.com. Scroll all the way down and you will see a place to pop your email address in and grab the recording. Welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. Today, I have got um, the most amazing woman to introduce you to, and I'm going to talk with her. Her name is Kristen Saylor. She's amazing, and you're going to love it, I promise. Um, And so that's that. But before we get started, a couple of things. First, there is a free breathwork session waiting for you at breatheheelrepeat.com. So breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, heal, H-E-A-L, repeat, R-E-P-E-A-T.com, uh, which we're going to talk about breathwork a lot during this interview. And if you're like, but I just can't afford it, uh, yeah, it's free. And if you're like, but I don't want to leave my house, it happens in your home. Be like, but I don't want to wear clothes. Okay, so breathe naked in bed. That's totally cool. I've taken away every excuse you could possibly have. So go and do it and get your breathwork session at breathehealrepeat.com. The second thing, there are two spots left in 2018 for one-on-one coaching which I call dominatrixing because I tell you what to do in what order once we've had our calls. So uh, you can get more info at kristinkelp.com slash dominatrix or in any of the footers or the menu, just hit it. You can find your space there. If you know that that's for you and you want more info, throw me an email, k at kristinkelp.com. And if you're like, are you saying two for 2018, like total? And I'm saying probably. It feels like that's going to um, have way less availability because there are some big shifts happening elsewhere. So the whole like I'll just do it later thing doesn't apply. Okay. And finally, the tenderness gathering is my friend Pammy. Pammy Ballow is an amazing woman and uh, she has this incredible ability to uh, to channel um, otherworldly beings, spirits, whatever we want to call them, entities. She's rad. And uh, we're going to work together uh, for a one-time live workshop called Tenderness Gathering. So you come, you ask your questions, 
Um, so they answer them. It's amazing. And then uh, I do breath work to help you integrate what we've talked about and for to help you find your own answers instead of turning to someone else. So it's a good combo platter. It is $44 and you can find more information at breathehealrepeat.com. Bada bing, bada boom, there you go. Finally, if you dig this, and especially with this episode, you will, it would mean the world to me if you would share the podcast with a friend, just one doesn't have to be a big deal or if you would leave a review because reviews mean that other people uh, find it easier to find the podcast okay so dominatrixing free breathwork breathehealrepeat.com tenderness gathering also at breathehealrepeat.com and uh, please share it star it like it love it or shoot me an email k at without further ado please meet Kristen Saylor she's amazing thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time Hello, and welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. Today is totally, totally, totally just selfish because I want to know all the answers to these questions that I don't know. And um, today's guest is Kristen Saylor. And you're like, I've never heard of her. And I'm like, shut your face. You're about to. Calm it down. Um, Kristen is one of the least boxable people I've ever met in that you try, when you meet people, you try to put them in a box and you're like, okay, you're a that. No, you're a that. No, you're a that. Uh, and so Kristen is a, a priest, a breath worker and an athlete, like a triathlete, like a really good one. And I find these things confusing in that they live in one human. So I want to talk all about this and see where the secular and the divine and the very, very physical overlap and where they come apart and what happens. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And if that's boring to you, I'm sorry, you can click away now. But otherwise, Kristen, welcome. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy that you said yes. So I met Kristen during my breathwork training with Erin Telford in Brooklyn. I'm consciously slowing down because I'm really excited to talk to you. (laughs) Um, And I was just like, wait, but you're a priest, but you're here. That doesn't that just doesn't go together in my tiny mind. Um, and I was thinking about questions for you. I have lots of them, but I, I want to start with this place of like, of, of being unboxable, which is, I would imagine, incredibly challenging. And can you speak a little bit to that and to what, what you officially describe yourself as to other people, perhaps? Yeah, I love the, the label unboxable, as, as it were, because... I do have a hard time categorizing myself. And so I guess I tend first and foremost to identify myself as a priest because that is mind-blowing enough to most people and not what people are expecting to hear when they meet a young woman. So there is usually a moment of, wait, you're a what? Yeah. I'm sorry, I must have misheard you <laughs> say again. No, no, that can't be. Because, honey, let me mansplain this to you. You're not a man. <laughs> right. And... Yeah, I am slowly and reluctantly and trepidatiously accepting the label as of healer and breath worker and trying to figure out how to integrate those things. So I like what I like unboxable. I'll go with that. It's just really mind blowing um, and <laughs> and really, really fascinating to me. Um, I would also guess that it's sort of lonely. Is that as projecting? Am I just making that up? It can be. But, you know, actually, one of the great things of living on the margins of categories is that you meet other people who don't fit in. 
and you find out pretty quickly that there's more misfits who are doing really cool things than you think and then get the public spotlight. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so tell us about how you, um, I guess the, the place to start with, with the unboxable is the first box, which is, um, being a priest and how, how did you, cause people are like, Oh, she's, they're going to try and like put your age in here. Um, I don't know how old you are, but you're not like 80. Um, <laughs> so, so, so when did you feel the call to become a priest and how long does that take? And then how long were you a priest before you were like, Oh, also this breathworking thing needs to happen. <laughs> so, okay. I'll just give you the whole story. Um, I was actually not raised in the church at all. Um, my parents were kind of diehard wow. atheists. And so I found the church by accident when I was 10 and a friend invited me to church on a play date. And people always try to gloss over this story and say, oh, your friend's parents were concerned for your immortal soul. No, it just made more sense for them to pick me up before (laughs) mass on Sunday morning. And so I went to church not having any idea what it was. And um, I had a really profound experience of God that I can't do justice to with words. And one thing led to another. And I came home begged my astounded atheist parents to let me be baptized. They were horrified. (laughs) I might as well have announced that I was a heroin addict at age 10. And, um, but they respected my decision. And so I ended up being baptized when I was 16 and really stayed on that trajectory of church is my thing. This is how I differentiate myself. I found this unique space in society that I love to be in where, um, where you can be yourself in all of who you are. And I know that sounds rosy. And now that I'm a little more in the weeds of the church, that's not necessarily how I experienced the institution. But that was my first impression of the church as this really gracious, generous space that was happy to accept a weird 10-year-old. And so priesthood um, grew out of that when I got to college and realized, you know, I'm happiest when I'm in church. How do I make a career out of this? And found the Episcopal Church, again, by accident, story of my life. Saw a woman celebrating the Eucharist and had this moment of like, oh, uh, that, yes, that, I want to do that. And um, so the process of becoming a priest is very lengthy and very out of your control. It took me start to finish eight years. And I have been ordained for two and a half years. So let's see. I guess I was ordained just over a year before I found breathwork. Oh, so it was eight years of becoming a priest. You're ordained for a year and then you find breathwork. And are you like, this is fantastic? Are you like, oh my God, this ruins everything? (laughs) (laughs) Both. Totally both. Um, So were you immediately in love with breathwork or were you like, this is terrible, but I keep coming back to it? Like what? Was it, was it a divine experience like when you were 10 or was it very, okay. Yeah. Tell me more. Very much like that, actually. Yeah. I signed up for a private session kind of out of desperation because I was having really profound sleep issues and just had found nothing that worked and read some weird article about breath work, decided Mm -hmm. what the hell, here we go. And it was like nothing I had ever experienced. I had a very strong sense of divine presence, which I was not Mm -hmm. in the slightest expecting. And it really just blew my worlds apart and sent them smashing into each other. Um, 
in a way that made me say, I don't know what I just experienced, but I need more. Yeah. How do I get more? Um, and so did you, um, when you describe what happens during breath work to people, what are the words that you use? And I'm just so curious because it's so difficult. <laughs> what are the words? It's so hard to describe. I'm really bad at explaining it. That's a big thing I'm working on. Um, I tend to sell it as, hey, guys, I can teach you to breathe in a way that'll make you trip and see crazy visions, which is not <laughs> perhaps the best way to market like, hey, the guys, experience. Hey, guys, let's acid in church, man. It's going to be great. But once I sort of get past the like, hey, cool visions, uh, I really sell it as mind, body, spirit integration in a way that's really hard to find in this society. It's a good way to get out of our heads, into our bodies, um, get in touch with our intuition and our true desire. I don't tend to market it as a tool to experience God just because I don't want to wield my mm -hmm. priestly authority too heavy-handedly when I'm occupying that role of healer, as you will, just because that authority is really loaded for people and people really easily confuse clergy with God. And so I downplay that when I'm doing breath work just to create a more equal playing field between and me and my clients. have you experienced, uh, like, have you done breath work in a sanctuary or breath work with your congregation yet? Or is that a future thing? Is that interesting to you? I mean, that's something I think about a lot. I mean, that's something I think about a lot. I have not done groups with my congregation. To me, that would be a boundary violation between me and my parishioners right now. I have done a session in the sanctuary of my church just because that was the space that was available. It was cool and mm -hmm. mind blowing and very strange. And I have worked with several clergy, both in and outside the sanctuary. But yeah, I, one of, one of the spaces I'm really interested in is sort of teaching clergy how to be embodied humans and not to live in such a cerebral well, I think that's, space. Um, even so clergy and nerds are very similar that way in that um, like the first 30 years of my life was basically <laughs> like, yes. I am a brain and there's this really annoying thing called a body that I just have to like, like look at it. It's, I hate it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is God. I have to eat Always again. In the way. I am hungry yes. yet again is miserable um and so what aside from so breath work like what are i want to play with misperceptions here um what are the misperceptions that clergy or nerds or really cerebral people have about being embodied oh my god where to begin i think we just like you said forget about it and regard bodies as disposable and inconvenient and we're just conditioned not to talk about them. And it's interesting, especially when you insert it into Christianity, because the church has such a history of downplaying and abusing human bodies, which is so ironic when you think about it, because what makes us Christians yes. is that we think God yes. so became I have a this human quote. being. I totally Krista tip with a body. Right here. I have a quote that I want to read back to you, which is uh, from one of your sermons. Yes. By taking on a human, no, it's really good. It's really, I promise you sound oh amazing. It's really, really wise. Uh, by taking on a human body, God is showing us that there is no aspect of our humanity that God is not willing to share. 
that no secret pocket of shame or fear is too much for God to handle, that no brokenness is too great for God to heal, that there is nothing we need to hold back for fear of being ridiculed, judged, or punished. Um, so that speaks right into that. Like, can you talk about taking back our bodies from the they're bad or they're a commodity or both worlds, um, whether it's they're bad in in religion or they're a commodity in the world. Um, can you talk about bodies? I know that's incredibly vague, but you can just go wherever you want to go with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the work. And I feel like it's work that the world doesn't want us to do, that we have to fight pretty hard to reclaim our bodies from the church, from the patriarchy, from from whatever you will. And and yet that's where we have life because our bodies have so much to teach us. And I imagine this has been your experience too. When you do breath work and when you dig into that embodied wisdom, but that's when you come alive. That's when you have breakthroughs. That's when you have sort of creative surges. It's not by mentally making lists or rationally breaking things down. It's when you really tap into this fount of energy that is your body. And there's so much there if we can learn how to listen. And that for me is really where, where my faith and my role as a priest and breathwork intersect is what do our bodies have to offer us and how do uh, we connect people to pause. Them? I just need a minute. Um, that's because of the, so it's, (laughs) we're recording this in January. It's going to come out in the beginning of February, but January is all about bodies, but not in the way we're in that healthy way. It's in the lose weight, get fit, get the abs and sort of punish and torture your body into the shape of your choosing, Mm -hmm. which is also not healthy. Um, and so what do you know as an athlete about being embodied that most of us do not guess about bodies. So I am not an athlete. I have done, I did CrossFit twice a week for a few years and I hated every second. I swore the whole way through and I was like, this is the actual worst. Uh, Whereas you, (laughs) I've seen an interview where you talk about how you use your movement as a sort of prayer. And what is it that athleticism unlocks in you that even breathwork and even religion can't or don't? It's funny you mentioned this. Are you reading my mind? Because I'm working on a blog post about this right now. Um, I have always been a person with a ton of energy that needs to be discharged physically. I was the kind of child where when I was freaking out about something, <laughs> my mom would run. open the door and say, just run. go run around the block and come back when you're calm. Yeah, I had to be run. Um, and I still have to be run. So... I can only understand the world when I'm moving my body. And it took me a while to figure that out. I was not an athletic kid. I was the kid who hated gym class and was always picked last for every team. So it's really something I've come into as an adult of, hey, you know what? I can do this. This is my body. The brats in the seventh grade Mm. gym locker room don't get to tell me what I can and can't do with it. So... A huge part of my sort of coming into adulthood has been figuring out how my body wants to move and learning from it. So in terms of what I know that normal people don't, oh, I don't know. But there is a profound knowing of your body that comes 
when you do the same thing day in, day out, when you can be running, not looking at your watch and know how long you have until X muscle starts flaring up and what your pace is and what your cadence is. And you can just tell that because because your body knows, not because your brain knows. And so that intimate level of familiarity with what does my body need and what is it feeling is something that I've really learned from. Yeah, because uh, when I ask what my body needs, the answer is usually like sugar or a nap. It's it's not a it's not a very complicated language, um, and I think that's because I, <laughs> I haven't invested Valid. the time in like there's there's not a whole lot of nuance. There, well, whereas I think you have layers of nuance available to you. In a sense, and also <laughs> it is pretty basic. I mean, what does my body need? The answer is usually carbs. Lots and lots and lots of carbs. carbs to you. <laughs> so, mm. well, that's good. No, so no, mine no. does it's that without my having to run. I think I might be Again. a transcendent human. That's that's my suspicion there. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, but Maybe the body is a triathlete. Yeah, so I have another for you. No, I want to talk about the brats in the seventh grade locker room. Because I think um, I, have, I have been deeply impacted by the brats in the seventh grade locker room. And I think possibly that's just like part of being a human is that we all have if we grew up in any sort of high school situation where that was a thing. Uh, what did they say? Like, what what did you decide about your body? <laughs> and then what changed when you came into athleticism about like, no, dude, this is not going to stick anymore. So my sort of social experience of my body in elementary school was a little bit complicated. I mean, I was skinny from early on. So I had people coming up to me out of the blue and saying, oh my God, I'm so jealous. How do you do it? And I was just like, I don't know. Like, like, this is first grade, dude, stop. Why are you asking me this? This is just what I look like. Um, What do you mean, what do I do? I live. But from an early age, my body was a talking point and an idealized thing in a way that was very confusing to me. And, and on the same, on the flip side, I was tall. I still am tall. And so I would also have people coming up to me on the street and just without preamble saying, what position do you play? Oh, 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 cause, cause anyone who's six feet tall has to be a basketball (laughs) star. Of course I'm terrible at ball sports. Don't even get me started. So I think there was this assumption based on the way I look that I was going to be good at sports and I was awful so my experience of the seventh grade locker room was just letting people down the first week of gym class I was always the first one chosen for the team and then by week four I was the last one so there was just this public demotion every year in gym class of oh she's really oh (laughs) you would have been returned to paypal like significantly not as described no no uh, and then when did you begin to take that back? Was it while you were seeking exactly. coordination or was it very recent? When did, when were you like, no, okay. No, college. In college, I started to swim. Um, and that was really how I made sense of the world. That was 
you know, God, I think I wrote 95% of my senior thesis in the pool in my head, uh, swimming laps, because that was just where everything made sense. That was where I processed grief and loss and rage, and I would just swim it out. And from there, it kind of grew. And I realized, you know, I don't actually suck at this. What if, what if I could be good at other things too? And what if I could put them together mm. into uh, different and sports, then into triathlon maybe? And are you training for something, for a triathlon? Okay. All right. Uh-huh. I am, yeah. So I'm training for a half marathon in March. And my okay. first triathlon And see, this for the is fascinating to me because this is, is not a thing that would ever May. appeal to me. And so... Um, what does it look like to commit to, so your life, it has these three really big plates in it. Like committing to a triathlon is a really big plate and healing is a big plate and priestliness is a really big plate. Um, yes. How do you, what does a day look like for uh-huh. you and how do you integrate these, these, obviously they have some overlap, but they are also very distinct. Like you can't be a priest while you're in the pool because uh, people can't access you while you're in the pool. You know what I mean? <laughs> so talk to me about these, no, these I am not a priest in my swimsuit as balance no. or overlap or you just like switch modes how is it that you have these three big giant entities that live in you that's a good question um it's a definitely a balancing act from day to day the thing is they're all things i love and so that is what makes it possible so this morning I have already run four miles. I am now at church. I'll work a full day. I will go swim in the evening. Two days are not that common right now, but will become more commonplace as I get closer to racing season. So you just have to be really prepared and really on your game and sacrifice certain things. So, I mean, it's clear to me that I don't have much of a social life right now. Because if someone asks me to go out, I have to consult not just my work calendar, but also my training calendar. So you, but it's about prioritizing, like what, what are my goals and intentions right now? And what am I, what am I trying to manifest? And what's interesting is that this, this conviction that this is the year I really want to train for triathlon came in our breathwork training. Yeah. Not what I was expecting. Like everyone is sharing these big like breakthrough moments of, you know, I just really want to switch careers and I want to grow a healing practice. And my vision <laughs> in the, in our first uh, full session of breathing was I need to go buy a bike. Oh, that's amazing though, that, that you're, you're like, sort of what? the physical embodiment of this, I mean, of organized religion, okay. which basically has no body. And breathwork, which is all body, and then this athleticism that bridges the gaps and makes this really neat triumvirate of cool <laughs> stuff. Um, no, you're really you're real old. Just because I mean, you can be a cool priest. <laughs> you whatever, make me sound so much fine. cooler than I actually am. Um, I just I don't see people. I see people that are really committed to doing healing work that are not actually embodied and people that are embodied that have no sense of a calling and people that have a calling that have no sense of having a physical body. It's really, 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 really unusual to find someone who's hitting all three. And, um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what's so, so fascinating. True. So can we talk for a moment about, um, I have this 
social justice, which is something that you, so in addition to this, like incredible interior life, you also have this very public, like you have a congregation life. Um, and so one of the concerns before we got on the call for those listening was like, well, if somebody comes in demanding holy water, mm-hmm. I might have to make it cause I'm a church. So like it could happen. Um, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Like, no, 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 no. My boss totally walked in while you were interviewing me, and I shoot him away Um, with urgent facial expressions. So you also have this this very public pressure to perform and give a sermon and say things. And I read your sermons. They're not like, and then Jesus was nice to everyone. High fives, Jesus. Like, you're really pushing the envelope in terms of social justice. Where does that thread of passion come in, and where do you... um, hold it and, and let it sort of grow in you. So that thread was always there. Um, from, from pretty early on when I was discerning a call to priesthood, but my congregation makes it easy because they are 95% not white, mostly Latino, many of them undocumented. So I do the majority of my work as a priest in Spanish. And unlike many of my colleagues who are in affluent white congregations, I don't have to sell my people on the idea that immigration reform is something Jesus is 100% on board with. So I can get away with being extremely political from the pulpit And where does it come from? It comes from engaging my audience and every Sunday reading, or before every Sunday, reading the assigned readings and saying, what's here and what do my people need to hear? So I very much preach with an eye to the news, to current events. And my God, like in the political climate we live in right now, there's no end to the things that need to be addressed pastorally. important. So on Sunday we um, talked about shithole countries because my listeners, um, how can you not are white? As is my sense, according to my everything available to me, um, there are a few people of color and and they don't talk to me. Um, most of my people are incredibly introverted, mostly hermits, and so they don't talk in general. Um, but I don't hear much from people of color. Um, anyway, what do you wish that my probably white, probably female um, nurse could could hear about taking the first steps toward speaking out, toward being political, um, toward saying like, my God, this is not okay. That's such a good question. What I really don't have time for is... Oh, that's such a good question. Because what I really don't have time for is clergy specifically who take to social media and just berate people for not being more involved and bash people over the heads with guilt. Because I think there is a real sense of, I do care and I am horrified, but I don't have a damn clue where to start. Like, what is my in? And so I'm in that sense lucky because I was handed my in. When Trump got elected, there was no mystery of how it was going to affect my life. It was, oh, okay, I'm going to spend a lot more time in immigration court in the next four years because my people are going to get deported. And so what I really try to do is share my experience in my own social media networks, which are, I think, pretty similar to yours demographically, 
just to put a face on it. So what I would say is find people to follow, to, to meet in real life if you can, who are talking about the political situation in a way that energizes you to act instead of paralyzes you with guilt and inaction. And once you find those people, then you can start to feel empowered and you can find a foothold to get involved. So when people ask me, what can I do? I say, come to church, come meet my people. You can't, you can't fight for people you don't know. You can't fight for an abstraction. And you, I mean, immigration reform doesn't have to be the thing you care about. There are a million other things to be furious about, but find the thing that speaks to you and, or maybe it'll find you by accident. I never came into this saying, my goodness, I just want to be a crusader for that's beautiful. Stopping I think deportation. So much of it, is, it just it sort of fell into my lap. You live in, and like once it had a human face, more segregated then than there it's was ever no been, despite having me. fewer segregation laws than we've ever had. Um, uh, if it is an abstraction of some kind, it's really easy to try and follow people on Instagram mm-hmm. who are just shaming constantly about you're not doing enough, you're not saying enough, and you um, and you don't care. And the truth is, you just don't feel qualified to say a damn thing. <laughs> and so. And, and shaming about how it was like, you don't know. And I'm like, you're right. I don't know, which is why I'm not going to take it yes. upon myself to, exactly. to speak about this, uh, which, which turns into white people are being really silent and you're a bad person. I'm like, but I promise that's not what's happening. So I love that find people so to follow and in a way that urges you to act instead of that paralyzes you into inaction. Right. Cause shame shuts me down like nothing else. Yeah. Like when you, be, when you begin with, you're a bad person, I'm like, okay, I can't hear anything you have to say after that, unfortunately. I don't think I'm all that yes, unique agreed. in my humanity in that shame shuts us down. Uh-huh. Cool. Do you have anybody that's like, you should be following this person? He or she uh, is delightful, 100% amazing, agreed. wonderful. I get some good juice from this person. Oh man, good question. I mean, not that I can think of right away. I will say that sort of the more yep. diverse <laughs> your net is, the better. Like try not to hear your perspectives exclusively from white people. Got some people of color in there, my God. And and listen to what they have to say. But you know, find what, find what works for you. And at the same time, don't cherry pick to me. So, so the, the way this really blows up for me is when something terrible happens in the news, clergy Facebook is all, if you don't talk about shithole countries in your sermon, what are you doing in the pulpit? And on one level that shuts me down. And on another level, if it is someone I know and trust, (laughs) maybe that is what make, what'll make me change my sermon. It was this week. (laughs) It was written by the time Trump talked about shithole oh. countries. And I was like, oh my God, really? Yeah. There's nothing worse than having yeah. to change your damn sermon at 3 p.m. on a Saturday. Like, no. Yes. I don't and those care. are going to be different for everyone. And that's the different. battle. Amazing. But finding the voices um, that'll make you do that. I want to, can I close with a really, really good quote that you made and then have you talk about it? Sure. <laughs> 
So um, the the only way that I know to give a good interview is to play uh, Krista Tippett, who does On Being. Sure. If you haven't listened no, to I'm On scared. Being, guys, do it. Um, and you say, when we forgive, we break the chain. We refuse to return violence for violence. That doesn't mean that we don't speak out against evil or that we don't seek justice. It simply means that we decide to take control of the only thing we can, our behavior, and refuse to put any more violence into the world. Can you talk to me a little bit about taking violence out of circulation and how you do that in your work and through your work and how you might like to keep doing that? <laughs> it was a good one. I was like, wow, amazing. So hard. Wow. That was not the quote I was expecting you to pull. Um, <laughs> well, okay. You did. Oh. And it's so smart. You get to think it's, like, so, it's oh, funny God, when people I'm quote smart. your sermons because invariably they'll say something to you that you're supposedly said. And you're like, did I say that? <laughs> well, I mean, to me, that's sort of breaking the chain of violence. It's not an original idea. It's um, based in Rene Girard and his work about scapegoats. But to me, that's a lot of what Christianity is about. It's about Jesus refusing to repay violence for violence and instead dying with and on behalf of a broken humanity. So, I mean, that's where it's coming from. And to me, the idea of breaking the chain is a little bit more accessible I mean, than what we often violently. hear from just, Bible you know, thumpers. Of, well, Jesus laid down his life and so should you, which like, what does that even mean? How do I do that just, practically? Just go get shot for funsies, I think, is step yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do I seek right. that out? Like, how do I check that off my to-do list for today? Yeah. And not helpful. But, but this idea that it trickles down into all the ways in which violence informs our thoughts and our actions and our speech, and that the way that we grow as human beings, and in my case, commit to my Christian faith, is in these moment-to-moment decisions of, you just said something to me that really triggered me, and I have options I have options and how I respond. And if we can just slow down the rage and the instinctive response enough to not return violence for violence, then that is where magic happens. I think and the it is hard to getting better at it is probably the I don't most know how to do it, part, but, but you're never going to be perfect. You just try. You try and you mess up a lot and you get up and try but again. Yeah, that's that's so wise. And so if people are, in fact, in love with yeah. you and would like to find yeah. out more about you, where do they head? Who do they follow? Talk to me. <laughs> so fancy. Ah, um, I blog at kristensailor.com. Yeah, it's spelled differently from your name I'm fancy. Sailor, S-A-Y-L-O-R. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and awesome. I Is there anything else that you're Kristen. like, you, know, you really need to talk about this before we so go? So those two places. Yes. I'm, I'm trying here. I'm trying. Um, and is there any um, further resources? Books, oh, my God. No. Anything you got, that you're you like, covered, girl. just get everybody on earth to take a look at this, read this, or think about this, life would be better. 
And then you can email those to me. That's okay. We don't have to, mm. we don't have to give you the official like, pressure point. Question. I feel like I'm going to think of 12 things as soon as I hang up this call. Um, <laughs> yeah. My God. I mean, think about what it means to have a body. Find those resources that inspire you to integrate, whether that's following breath workers or activists mm. or artists or whatever makes you feel alive. Yes, and but that's so wise. 100% are authentically so you yet, in your physical form. Follow those people. <laughs> and again, they're going to be different they for are. everyone. There's, there's free trips and breath work for sure. <laughs> They're right. everything. So, They're also so uh, KristenSailor.com, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-S-A-Y-L-O-R, Sermons Breathwork. Yes. Um, you can follow her on Instagram for magical things. And thank you so much for being with us and for hanging out. <laughs> I love you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I love your podcast. I'm so thrilled to be on it. Thank you for listening. One more time, The Antidote is a series of monthly gatherings to help you come back to your body, your being, and your breath when it's most likely that you'll self-abandon. The Antidote is the antidote to trying to do everything all alone, all by yourself, while you grow more stressed and you're generally freaking out and telling everyone you're fine while quietly or not so quietly, scream sobbing in a private place between tasks. Let's not do that. Let's try something different. This is a really simple format, one gathering a month on the first Tuesday of the month until the 2024 election. So we're practicing the skills that we will need in November now and we're getting really comfortable with body, breath, and being now. And that's available to you at jointheantidote.com. There's a free recording. You can sign up. You can get more details. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy.